0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. One symptom of our planet-altering behavior is an ever-growing number of human-made chemical contaminants in our daily life. Those chemicals of most concern are chemicals that have hormone-like properties, the so-called endocrine-disrupting chemicals or EDCs. I like this quote that comes from one of our major medical journals, The Lancet, an editorial a couple of years ago, because it explains how I feel about these endocrine-disrupting chemicals. They're not just a public health problem, they're a planetary health problem. And in the few minutes I have, I'm gonna to try to explain to you why I and my colleagues am so concerned about endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Our endocrine system makes hormones, and these hormones create complex signaling networks that control our metabolism, our growth, our sexual function, our sleep, and our behavior. Spurious signals from endocrine-disrupting chemicals act like radiostatic that can disrupt this complex signaling. Let's think about a typical morning in America. You wake up, do your personal grooming, hit the car, and head for your office. Perhaps on the way you stop for breakfast. By the time you sit down in that office chair, you've already been exposed to many, many different endocrine disrupting chemicals. In your personal care products, the plasticizers, the preservatives, the antimicrobials, in your upholstery, the flame and stain retardants that make our life so much easier. In the pressure printed receipts that we handle on a daily basis, and the packaging that makes our coffee and our foods water and grease proof, the linings are water and grease proof. In order to understand the concerns of these chemicals, we need to back up and think about what makes us who we are. Who we are, our phenotype, what we look like, how we behave, and our disease risk is due to the interaction of our genes and our environment. Now we spend a lot of time sequencing the human genome and we know a lot about gene action. We know less about how the environment impacts us, but we know that species adapt to their environment. We see it all the time. In agriculture, we can spray for pests and we can spray herbicides to control weeds. And eventually those weeds will stop paying attention to that herbicide and begin to grow again. In the laboratory, we could expose yeast to noxious chemicals that kill them and a few mutant D cells will escape and grow. Every year we get a flu vaccine and it changes every year because the flu viruses evolve and change. And so we try to create a vaccination that will capture the viruses that we think will be most exposed to. And of course we've all watched SARS-CoV-2 evolve and mutate in real time. There are two ways that that we can adapt to our environment, either by DNA mutations, direct changes to the sequence of our DNA that give us a new phenotype, like the ability to escape an herbicide. But we can also create epimutations, changes not to the DNA itself, but chemical changes to the proteins that package that DNA. And these are not changes to the DNA sequence, but they too can give a new phenotype because they can affect the way our genes are expressed. And it's these types of changes that are so interesting and important from the standpoint of environmental effects, because it's our epigenome that allows us to be environmentally responsive. Now, this responsiveness to the environment, whether it's natural changes like famines and droughts or exposure to human-made endocrine-disrupting chemicals, can have costs to our fertility, our development, and our health. EDC exposures have been linked to metabolic changes like diabetes and obesity, to behavioral changes like autism, and to increases in disease risk like cancer, prostate, and breast cancer. I'm going to focus on reproductive effects because that's where my expertise lies. And I actually began my research career focused on perhaps the best-known environmental effect on our reproduction, which is the effect of maternal age on our ability to make a normal egg. So we all know that as women get older, they're an increased risk of having a Down syndrome baby, a chromosomally abnormal baby. Down syndrome is an aneuploid condition. It's an extra chromosome 21. The increased risk is correlated with age. So as you can see from this curve, by the late 30s, the incidence of these pregnancies skyrockets. You can also see at the other end of our reproductive lifespan, there's also a little increase, and this is real. So at both ends of our reproductive life, there's an increase in our propensity to make abnormal eggs. Well, about 20 years ago, I was convinced that this was due to subtle changes in our hormones, because we know that our cycles are not very normal, either at the beginning or at the end of our reproductive lifespan. And I thought that maybe this was driving the chromosome abnormalities. Mice don't make very many mistakes making eggs, but we thought we could use them to ask this research question. And it was in the midst of these experiments that I entered the world of endocrine disrupting chemicals when all of my mice were suddenly exposed to bisphenol A or BPA because a temporary worker washed our cages and water bottles with the wrong detergent, the floor detergent, and immediately exposed our animals to bisphenol A. And we saw it as a change in the eggs from perfectly normal control females. Well, if we fast forward 20 years later, we know a lot more things about these endocrine disrupting chemicals and their effects on our reproductive abilities. We know that it's not just limited to eggs. It's not just the egg that's vulnerable. The process of making sperm is also vulnerable. It's not just BPA, the replacement bisphenols that have allowed the production of BPA-free plastic can also induce these effects, as can other plasticizers like phthalates and other endocrine disrupting chemicals. And effects aren't just limited to the exposed generation. Some of these effects can be seen in subsequent unexposed generations. So let's examine these in a little bit more detail. It takes a long time to make an egg. In the developing fetus, that developing ovary is actually supporting the development of all the oocytes that that female will produce in her lifetime. And some very important pieces of the process of making an egg take place here. In the neonatal period, those developing eggs become packaged, if you will, in follicles that will control their growth and and help them reach a normal egg. An adult once there's a proper hormone environment to support this. And so hopefully every every cycle, this culminates in the ovulation of a chromosomally normal egg. The process of making sperm is a little bit different because it's not starting during fetal development. It's not even starting during neonatal development, although the stem cells that are gonna allow for continuous spermatogenesis are being developed here during this neonatal period. And with maturation and the proper hormone environment, of course, we get continuous sperm production. What's really interesting is in both males and females, exposure during all three of these developmental windows, exposure to these endocrine-disrupting chemicals can adversely affect the process in both males and females. We've all been hearing a lot about declining sperm counts. This has been in the news a lot lately. And Shanna Swan has been a leader in, in presenting this information. She's just written a book called Countdown, where she details the evidence for a consistent decline in sperm counts over time. This is thought to be due to exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals. What was originally called the estrogen hypothesis, now more properly should be the EDC hypothesis or the endocrine disrupting hypothesis, the idea being that we think that exposure to these chemicals is causing a decline in sperm counts. But we've never understood how this happens and why this happens. Well, our studies in of the male have provided one way that exposure at one time can cause changes to the sperm count. This is a cell from a mouse that's been exposed to BPA. It's trying to undergo the divisions to make a sperm cell, but it's making mistakes and the chromosomes are coming apart. In the male, this does a very interesting thing. This causes the death of the cell. And with enough mistakes, you get a drop in sperm count. So we can see a reason that these endocrine-disrupting chemicals could cause a drop in our sperm counts. It also shows us an interesting difference between males and females because females will make chromosome errors and give rise to chromosomally abnormal eggs and males will kill all of those mistakes as they're being made. One of the most fascinating effects of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, fascinating from the standpoint of a biologist, is that some of these effects are transgenerational. They not only affect the exposed individuals, but they can persist and affect subsequent unexposed generations. Now in the laboratory setting, We do this experimentally, not with humans, we don't experiment with humans, but in our mouse models by exposing the father and looking for effects on sperm counts in that individual, but also in his sons and his grandsons. If we see effects in the son, we can't really consider that individual unexposed because he comes from a sperm cell from an exposed testis. But if we see effects in the grandson, that's really an unexposed individual. And that means that this is a transgenerational effect. So every time I would talk about my male studies and what we were finding, someone in the audience would ask, is this a transgenerational effect? So we decided we should look at that, but we also decided we'd ask a more real life question. And that is, what happens if we have an exposed father and an exposed son and an exposed grandson? Because that's how we are being exposed. It's not like one generation is exposed and these endocrine disrupting chemicals are disappearing. Actually, more of them are appearing and different kinds are appearing. What we found is we found a tremendous increase in the defects in the testis as a result of three generations of exposure. In fact, by the third generation, we had males who who had testicles that were not able to make any sperm. I wish we'd run the experiments for another generation or two, but we did not. And that's pretty sobering. And added to all the other effects of these chemicals, it leads to a number of important questions. How much exposure is safe? For my colleagues and I who study these chemicals, they're hormone-like chemicals. Hormones can exert tremendous effects at very small doses. So we're not sure any level is safe. How are we exposed? How much are we exposed, especially during critical periods of development, like fetal development and the newborn? And what you're all probably thinking is, okay, if these chemicals are so dangerous, why aren't they being regulated? The short answer to that question is, we're working with a regulatory system that's outdated. Essentially, when we started worrying about chemical effects, we were interested in them as toxins. How much did it take to kill us? And we would set up studies to examine what dosage level killed half of the rats. We were interested in whether they were mutating our DNA and of course, whether they caused cancer. We assumed that the dose makes the poison. If a little bit was bad, more would be worse and even more would be really bad until eventually you'd get to a dose that would kill you. Well, endocrine disrupting chemicals defy this simple approach. Tiny amounts can exert powerful effects, and sometimes when you increase the levels, you don't see the same effects, so the effects may go away or change. In the U.S., regulating these chemicals has been difficult because we use standard toxicology testing paradigms developed decades ago to use multiple generations and look at fertility and look at organ and weights over time across generations, And these standard testing for things like BPA have not found evidence of significant harm. In contrast, there are lots of studies like mine taking a very detailed look at a complex subject like making eggs, making sperm, or building a brain. And we see effects that maybe they don't cause infertility, but they certainly affect our fertility. Maybe they don't destroy our brains, but they certainly can cause behavioral effects. So when regulators look at these studies, they understand the traditional toxicology testing methods, but they don't quite know what to do with studies like ours. So traditionally we've depended more heavily on the traditional toxicology testing results and assumed that BPA is not causing harm. How we actually assess the safety of a chemical in this country is like this. We used to look at a maximum dose that was tolerated. Well, that still holds for pharmaceutical drugs, But we're more interested for endocrine-disrupting chemicals in the lowest dose that gives us an observed effect. Because if we can find this lowest dose, then we can add a safety factor, say of 1,000-fold, and say, okay, this must be okay to ingest this amount on a daily basis. This is our tolerable daily intake. This is our safe dose. And then we need to know how much we're exposed to. And if human exposure falls below this level that causes the lowest observed effects, we're okay. We don't have any reason for concern. So that's a risk-based approach where we assume that the risk is minimal if we're at a certain threshold of exposure. The European Union has taken a very different approach. In 2007, their safe dose was very similar to ours in the U.S. When it was realized that we get exposed to bpa by more than just oral exposure they dropped their safe level and said nah maybe we should be more conservative and this year they've dropped it or they're considering dropping it even further like 100,000 times lower why are they making this decision well they haven't made this decision yet it's still open for discussion but they're making this suggestion because they're using all of the data. So instead of just relying on those standard toxicology test results, they're pulling all of the data together and actually analyzing the hazard that this chemical represents and concluding that they must be much more conservative. Now this is good news because this is a good step to take for a chemical like BPA that we think is dangerous, but it hasn't happened yet. And this is just one endocrine disrupting chemical, BPA. There are many, many more. But this is a very interesting time in the history of BPA. So this is a kind of a gloom and doom story, leaving us with what can you do? Obviously, there are a lot of chemicals we need to be concerned about. They affect our fertility and our general health. We need to actually get to our legislators and convince them that we need different regulatory measures to take a look at these chemicals. But that takes a long time, so what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, I think it's important to develop chemical awareness, and this means we need to read labels. Many of these bad actors are listed on the labels, the phthalates, the parabens, the quaternary ammonium compounds. You can be a savvy consumer and make better decisions. We also need to be careful how we use and think about our plastics. The dishwasher and the microwave is absolutely no place for plastics, because heat and strong detergents are an invitation for the chemicals to migrate from these plastics. We also need to rethink their lifespan. This may be your favorite Tupperware container, but if it's showing signs of wear and tear, it's leaching chemicals and you need to get rid of it. And lastly, we need to be very careful what we ask for, and BPA is instrumental in this regard. We asked for BPA to be removed from baby bottles, sippy cups, and other consumer products. That resulted in a lot of BPA-free plastics, which simply were BPA being replaced by a host of replacement bisphenols, many of whom have similar actions. And we can't allow this to happen because this is a -a whack-a-mole game. So we have to be very careful what we ask for and ask for removal of bisphenol A and other bisphenol-like chemicals. But you know, chemistry is magical today. And green chemistry is a reality. We could actually make chemicals and ensure that they are not endocrine-disrupting chemicals before they go onto the marketplace. And this is what we really need to be asking for. And I'll stop there, but first I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues, especially the Drona Lab at UCSF, who's been our wonderful collaborator in these studies, as well as these collaborators on the side. And I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me to be part of this. Thank you.